What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We sit and we wait. And we die. Not if you sit and you wait. Spoiler, they don't sit and wait. Also, there's some dying. Just a little. A clip there from Green Room, a gory new thriller from film spotting Golden Brick winner Jeremy Saulnier. His Blue Ruin was our favorite Overlook film a few years back. This week, our review of Green Room, plus the film spotting top five, single location films. Also, the return of Massacre Theater and much more. Massacre Theater always involves some dying. It does. Ahead on film spotting. Film Spotting is presented by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. You never know quite what to expect from Movie, and this week they're bringing four films that are coming directly from the Art of the Real Festival, which takes place in New York. If you want to find out more information about the entire program, including the specific films, we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and these four films are playing exclusively to Movie. Josh, I clicked on that link to learn more. More about these movies and just one I picked out all four of them being totally honest sounded fascinating and this one really stood out to me it's called O Football or On Football directed by Sergio Oxman from Spain and it's a portrayal of a father and son relationship that is about two men who reconnect in 2013 breaking their 20 years of silence the director decided to see every game of the 2014 world cup with his father and movies description says without falling into the realm of the therapeutic the film shows their interactions while driving to and watching the games bearing witness to their silences and unconscious symmetries in addition to the odd male bonding engendered by watching sports the film's exquisite cinematography also offers a key to a city under soccer's spell so obviously huge documentary fan and i'm a sucker for father-son relationships on screen as well on football Ball sounds like a good one. Everyday movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile app and download films to watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting and Josh when they finally get around to making Film Spotting the movie because it's just a matter of time, really. It will be eligible for a future revisit of this week's top five single location movies. Maybe get Jeremy Sonier to direct, call it Beige Studio. <laughs> it's really beige in here, isn't it? It is. We will finally close the book on Film Spotting Madness 2016 this week. Results from the impossibly close third place contest between Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese will call live later in the show. But first, it's a backwoods hardcore punk club. Lots of guys with shaved heads are milling about. The young opening act has never played there before. What could possibly go wrong in Jeremy Saunier's green room? Gentlemen, you're trapped. Things have gone south. It won't end well. You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Blood and bleed. Get ready to run. Here we go. 
over the years here, it hasn't been customary for us to review a movie that we're also doing an interview for. Circumstances vary week to week, film to film. But one common reason is that the only way I know how to do an interview is to get as specific as I possibly can with the filmmaker about all the aspects of his or her project that I found most interesting. I'm pretty much offering up my review over the course of the conversation, just with more question marks and fewer exclamation points. So let's say I hadn't interviewed writer-director Jeremy Sonier about Green Room, a thriller about a punk band trapped in a club struggling to survive against a band of quite polite but determined skinheads. And that interview hadn't aired on our last episode. Then this week, I'd be taking up airtime babbling about Sonier's use of sudden bursts of violence that gradually spiral into more graphic and disturbing gore, about his exploration of phoniness and the difficulty of self-honesty, about how he uses the camera to heighten the band's sense of confinement and to heighten the audience's tension, about how he effectively offsets the noise of the music and the chaos of the situation with some relatively quiet, borderline-on-serene performances, and about the performances specifically of Patrick Stewart and Macon Blair, the club owner slash head leader and his soulful, susceptible right-hand man, respectively. You can read between the lines here, Josh. The dance floor is yours. I'm all out of ammo. During my talk with Sonia, he spoke about the nature of violence and how it's born out of a ruthless indifference we have to each other's needs. But he then almost apologized for sounding too preachy. He suggested he first and foremost wanted the movie to work as a fully immersive experience, adding that maybe on the second or third viewing, you'll unlock a few layers. Josh, how do you judge him on his primary objective? Did you get caught up in Green Room's visceral thrills and chills? And were you, let's say, perceptive enough to unlock any deeper layers on your first viewing? Well, that's how these genre films have to work, right? If they don't get the basic parts moving in the right ways... What's the point? Mm -hmm. And Sonia has proven now that he absolutely knows how to do that. I think there are some layers here, too. You touched on a few of them there, and I'll throw maybe another one in we can wrestle with. But uh, let me start by just talking about what sort of filmmaker he seems to be becoming. I know you touched on that in the interview with him. And there's a word you used in describing Macon Blair's character, soulful. And to me, Sonia seems to be becoming a soulful exploitation filmmaker, hmm. and I don't know if those things make any sense. I like it. But when you hold his work up to something that is more of a traditional grindhouse midnight movie, I was thinking about this. You know, watching Green Room, imagining watching it with the midnight movie audience that is, you know— not to mischaracterize, but let's just say a crowd that's just for, there for the thrills, mm -hmm. okay? However you want to consider that that crowd to be. And this might go over kind of um, poorly with that sort of crowd, not because it isn't thrilling. It, it is. But there's just an entirely different perspective or angle on the action that's taking place than in some of the exploitation films mm -hmm. I've seen. Some of this has to do with the characterization, um, how these characters are regarded as humans, not just modes of action or ways of making action happen or bodies where action happens too. Right. Um, and this doesn't really mean that they're full-blooded characters. That's not what I mean. We don't get a lot of background about even this band, but there are moments, there are choices made in what we see and how they might interact with each other where we recognize them as real human beings. So that's a distinct difference. And overall, it's just an uncommon sensitivity to pulp material, I would say. It's a, it's a way of being thoughtful about what is happening on the screen beyond simply the fact that it's happening. Mm -hmm. We're just not cataloging this sort of, in this case, violence, as it was in Blue Ruin, 
because it is violence and because that has an inherent cinematic thrill to it. There, there's a lingering here more on the horror that follows the violence than on the action itself. And I think that that is a distinctive. Other filmmakers work this way, too, but it's certainly a distinctive of his after seeing these two films. Yeah, I agree. And I take your point about how this may or may not play with a midnight type of audience, but I'm guessing we'll probably hear from a few people who will tell us that they saw it with that very type of crowd and they loved it because I think it would actually play like gangbusters. Again, get what you're suggesting, but this is a movie where that vice just keeps tightening and tightening. And there's an intensity to this film that builds from the very first frame to the final frame that Again, not to mischaracterize a midnight audience, but I think that's what they're after more than anything. It doesn't have to be about gore or doesn't have to be even exciting in the way that some horror movies can be, that they're just throwing everything at you. But this movie just builds in a way that I think is really satisfying. And I like what you said about how we don't get much background with the characters. And sometimes that can be a fault with a movie, though sometimes movies can go in the opposite direction and give you too much backstory and too much exposition. And one of the things I did love about this film that I didn't get into with Sonia when I talked to him is how you do know really everything you need to know about the characters who make up the band. And I didn't really touch on Anton Yelchin, who's probably the biggest star in the film and is kind of the main character. He's Pat the bass player. I mean, the bass player in any band really should be the hero of any story. <laughs> I, I don't knew know you were why. Get to that. I don't know why that doesn't happen more often. He's also just as clueless as I would be in this type of scenario. So I could relate a lot to Mr. Yelchin here. But within about 30 minutes, Josh, from the setup of meeting them in their tour bus, their van, I should say, and seeing how they kind of start their routine through the first machinations of all of this unraveling and it really hitting the fan and us seeing who they are under pressure— You could basically draw a character profile, I think, on every character just based on their actions and their reactions. Again, without any of that exposition or backstory, we don't know anything about this band. We just meet them on the road. That's a real strength as a director. That's all in visual storytelling. And because they're a band, their interactions with each other. That's what's so crucial, too. We know how they relate, and perhaps that's why the— de facto leader is Pat, the bassist. You yeah. know, he's, he tends to be the guy who's maybe the most thoughtful yeah, he's about kind what of a they're poet. doing. He might have some answers, but uh, no, he doesn't have any answers for this. No, he doesn't. And that humanity, though, and this is something Sonia brought up in our talk, extends to the bad guys here. And he made a very good point, which is it's so easy to see a sadistic villain in this type of film as just that, a villain. You then render them really just a character, which doesn't mean they can't still thrill you a little bit or scare you and you get a real sense of menace from them that is satisfying. But you don't necessarily see them as someone who is human. And I think it is much scarier watching humans. In this case, the Patrick Stewart character, Darcy, who is the leader of these skinheads, is the guy who owns the club. He's been put in a bad situation against his own will as well. This is not a case where he's doing this proactively. He doesn't like this band. He wants to torture them. No, he wants this all just to go away. And that gets back to that point that I referenced during the setup about how it's just this kind of ruthlessness, the way violence can come out, despite that not being the way these characters woke up that morning. They weren't looking to unleash this type of violence on anybody on that day. They got put in a bad situation themselves, and now they try to get out of it. Their way of getting out of it is just a whole lot more ruthless than the way 
most of us would. One of the things about Stewart's performance, I really was expecting something different from him because I had heard, I just saw this one it opened here in Chicago, so plenty of other people had seen it earlier, and I had heard a lot about him, mm-hmm. about how terrifying he was. And I was expecting maybe something like Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast, you know, where he's just going to command the screen no. and yank the movie away. And I think that's a great performance in Sexy Beast. I do too. But this is very different. Modulated and, a lot lower. Oh, my goodness. And, and just, you know, serving the story. It's a different story. So, again, it's not a better performance, but it serves what's going on here so distinctly in that he is this voice of cool logic, mm-hmm. right? He, You really think for a few moments there, well, this guy just does want to have this you know, taken care of. Yeah. Of course, you don't want to answer the question of, well, then how is he going to take care of it? Exactly. Um, and so there's just something to that cool logic that he brings that in the end, at the end of the day, is scarier than anything else he could have done. Mm-hmm. So I understand why people come out of this movie thinking that he is such a frightening figure. And Yelchin, on the other side of that, and here's a bit of why these people come across as people. He just, when he becomes the de facto leader, the spokesperson on the other side of the door, they've got themselves locked into the green room at this point and are negotiating, in effect, and it falls to Yelchin. He just cries and whimpers. Yeah. He doesn't, he can't. It's not that he doesn't put on a tough face or voice to Darcy through the other side of the door. He physically cannot. Mm-hmm. And that is key, I think, also to how Sonier handled the people in Blue Ruin, mm-hmm. where they are put in these situations and they really do act like someone who has not only never encountered this before, but has maybe never seen a movie of anyone encountering this before. Yeah. Right? It's just panicked instinct. Another little touch is when they get a hold of the gun from one of the henchmen in the green room. Mm-hmm. And so they have the power, right? And what would you expect in some sort of badass movie? Someone rises to the top as the leader, kicks down the door with right. the gun and takes charge. None of them really want the gun at first because it's in it's like most people who would not handle a gun. Yeah. Like I would be if a gun was in the room. I'd be terrified of it even if it was now in my control because I wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so things like that, just touches like that are ways that Green Room stands out. Yeah, I love your point about these characters not knowing they're in a movie or never seeing a movie like this before because there's undoubtedly a little bit of a meta element to this film, just like there was with Blue Ruin, where it's very clear that Sonia has seen lots of movies like this before, and he doesn't necessarily overload it with a bunch of textual references, but he's clearly playing with different genre conventions. And what really struck me, and I alluded to this a little bit during the interview, was that just palpable sense of cluelessness that you don't really have with movies like this. At some point, someone puts a plan together. They think of something. They come up with that way out. And there is this element to this film of it almost feeling like no matter how human everyone is, no matter how real everything gets and how tragic everything gets, it's almost like Pat is living in a bit of a dreamland. It's like he thinks that This is still some kind of fantasy where it's a bad dream. They just got into a bad situation. And even by the end of the film, no matter all the horror he's seen and all the damage that's been done, it's almost as if he thinks, well, maybe there's still some way out of this. We can go back and restart this day. And you can't restart that day. And so I really, as a viewer, was watching it and putting myself in his shoes and thinking about that, that palpable sense of futility and that palpable sense of These types of situations, while it being heightened for a film, without a doubt, nevertheless, I do think we all find ourselves in situations where 
things get real in a hurry, where all of a sudden you weren't expecting this today, but you're now in way over your head in something, and you hope it doesn't end the way it ends for these guys, but the reality is you've probably found yourself in some kind of similar situation or you're going to find yourself in that situation. That's what's scary. Well, and there's a level of denial, too, I think, to yeah. to Pat in that he doesn't want to admit that something this awful could totally really be happening. I think, you know, back to the handling of the violence, too, is is related to that. It's clumsy. It's awkward. It's right. unexpected. I mean, some of the one of the most horrible acts in the movie I almost missed because it's just out of nowhere. Not that it doesn't make sense within what's going on, but it's not the central focus. It Mm -hmm. isn't built up and then sort of um, lavished over and then hung upon and trailed out. It just suddenly occurs very awkwardly. And this happens on the side of the band and it happens on the side of the skinheads too. You know, once they get in the thick of it, they may have had more experience with violence as the implication Mm -hmm. than the band, but they're klutzy too once things start going crazy. Mm -hmm. And and I think this this ties into, you know, an idea that was very much in Blue Ruin is that violence is this cycle that is always going to churn and return and just eat everybody up in its way. Mm -hmm. And I think there is uh, just a wonderful recurring visual motif towards the probably the final third with one of these attack dogs that Darcy sends in after. Mm-hmm. And that he makes such a logical decision, too, to send in these dogs. It's like it doesn't occur to him how terrifying and horrifying what those dogs will do. Right. He's just like, well, this is the best way to solve the situation. Yeah. So there's a dog near the end that has gotten loose. And Sonia just cuts away to the image of this dog walking down this backwoods road mm-hmm. alone, dragging its chain behind it. And it doesn't have much to do with the practicality of what we're seeing, what he cut away from, mm-hmm. but just that little hint of implication yeah. and where that dog then ends up at the end of the film, we won't say at all, but is just this this really mesmerizing touch to me. Yeah, it's very potent. Just as an image, it's a very potent image. And I think that's due to the fact that we know the damage that that dog is capable of. We know about the violence that it can cause. And we also know that it's hurt. And so it becomes not human, but it certainly becomes sympathetic all of a sudden. Despite what we just saw it do, we now feel pity for this creature. At the same time, we're not entirely sure that it's not still capable of Mm -hmm. unleashing hell again, Right. right? So... Again, very potent imagery there, and I think we get a lot of it in this film. So let me ask you about one thing that uh, occurred to me while I was watching and then thought about it later. And and maybe there is an interesting thread here in terms of you know thematic levels that the movie might have. But the racial politics are mostly in the background. The band is told when they are invited to this gig that it's a pretty right-wing outfit. So they know right. that, and um, and they take the gig anyway. They're desperate. They do try to set themselves apart a little bit with the opening song yes. that they play that you know is kind of maybe trying to make a little bit of a statement. But for the most part, they seem to feel, all right, we're just going to keep our heads down. We're not totally on board with these guys, but we need the gig. We'll Well, be all right. And let's clarify just for a second. They play a song that is basically Nazi punks 
F off. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say to these people that they're singing to who are very scary, intimidating people, they spit right in their face, essentially. But then I love the little touch at the end where the singer then says, that was a cover. Right. It's right. almost like he's backtracking a little bit. And it is a cover. It's an actual song. And the band is skipping my memory right at the moment. But it's an actual tune. And it's as if he did try to distance himself a little bit and say, well, maybe that's not what we're really all about. And then they go into another song that the crowd does get it into. Over, yeah. And that's a really nice moment, too. It's like this rev where everyone joins together, it slips into slow motion, and we get a sense that they're communing in a way. And it made me think, like, it, it, there is a suggestion here that maybe this is how racism breeds, right? By by having the privilege just look the other way yeah. a little bit. And so the band, clearly they're not these racist monsters. No. But They've gotten into bed with them to a degree simply by looking the other way. And you could almost carry that through and say, well, maybe they got what they deserved then. Because what happens in the end is that they get caught up in the same sort of, you know, hatred and violence that white supremacy thrives upon. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like getting that close or not actively taking a stand against it, not being active participants in standing against that ideology has somehow made them complicit. So I don't, you know, I don't know how much you can follow that along, but it it did occur to me as I was, as I was watching it. Well, I can definitely see that. And the fact is we're talking about skinheads and you can immediately think back to Nazi Germany and think about all the people who were not complicit in everything that happened to the Jews, but they were certainly able to just watch it happen. They let it go by. And who knows whether or not that is something that's in Sonia's mind or not. But I think you can read that element into this film. And maybe it's only because these sorts of things have been coming up in 2016 in the U.S., whether it's discussions about white privilege in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement or Mm -hmm. whether it's white supremacy in relation to the Donald Trump campaign. I mean, these are all things circulating in the national conversation. So maybe it starts to seep into the film a bit that way. I think so. There's no doubt that he is exploring the damage, the potential damage of subscribing to an ideology and letting that ideology control your life. I think we do see that in this film. I think, too, at the same time, to kind of do what Sonia did during our conversation, we can talk about all this stuff and we should because I think it's there and I think it's there on a first viewing as it was for both of us. I don't think you need to go back to it a second or third time, though I'm sure a second or third time would be even more rewarding. But on a very basic level and on a horror movie type of level, that's a classic trope as well to have characters who are desperate do something that they shouldn't do and know they shouldn't do, and they get punished for it, and characters who also, it's kind of a case of be careful what you wish for. You think you're a hardcore band. You think you can go take down any crowd out there that you are these important musicians that are making some kind of statement, and you're going to go in and thumb your nose at these people. Well, it doesn't go so well, does it? They look so small and young on that stage, don't they? Yeah, they really do. I want to get back to one little nuts and bolts thing as well, and that's the sound design, because you're mentioning this as a horror film, reminded me of it, how well that works in creating the, the tension that this film has throughout. Even once they're barricaded in the green room, the opening act is still performing. And the way, and that is some hardcore stuff, right? and the way that just comes throbbing through the walls of the green room, you feel like it's going to knock them down and allow the other skinheads to get in. It's just yeah. so intense. There is also, going back to that dog, awful, slobbery sounds when it attacks. Yeah. And, you know, you see some terrible things, but what you hear is even worse. Mm-hmm. And 
another sound that will stick with me is the whine of the microphone of the sound system. Yeah. Because at one point, one of the band members, I almost accidentally figures out, you know, the mic is near the, the speaker. The dogs don't like it. It's going to be feedback. It may chase away the dogs. And so they rely on that. And, and that's just, you know, this penetrating noise. So all of this together is just this real cacophony of horror that does so much to make the film work. Green Room is currently out in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you are looking for more Green Room talk, albeit in a slightly different context, we recommend the next picture show. They dropped two new episodes this week. They, of course, are the wise and trusted ant in the Film Spotting <laughs> podcast family. I wonder how Scott Tobias and Keith and Tasha and Genevieve feel about being called the wise We're Film Spotting find out. ant. <laughs> They consider Green Room along with another single location thriller, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976, and in some other film spotting podcast family news, our hip younger cousins, I guess, film spotting SVU. They also have a new show out this week. They're reviewing the dark German comedy, Look Who's Back. So both of those podcasts with new episodes this week that we highly recommend. And just a quick note, because I know, Josh, that there are many listeners out there who enjoy partaking in all three shows that are part of this film spotting family. We are switching up the scheduling just a little bit. There's going to be an extra week off. Those shows both publish every two weeks instead of weekly like us. But there's going to be an extra week off before the next next picture show episode because we want to kind of get them on an alternating schedule. So every week you're getting at least two new shows from two of the three shows. So just everybody who's a next picture show fan, be aware of that. So if we've got the aunt and we have the cool younger cousin, are we like grandpa? Are we dad? <laughs> I feel it sometimes. <laughs> when grandpa and dad return, we'll reveal the results of the film spotting poll in which listeners voted for our next marathon subject. Are we headed to China or the Nordic nations? Plus the return of Massacre Theater. Are we going to give terrible performances? Yes. Stay with us. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest. I'm a bad, bad I shot those suckers and I shoot the rest, but I take no joy. They call me Johnny Lee, rock and roll hooker with a heart of gold. Baby, I'm gonna do what I please. They call me train wreck, most of deck, heavy hanging to the left. Baby, I'm gonna do what I please. What oh, what oh, oh. 15 men on a dead man's chest I shot those suckers and I shoot the rest Dearly beloved We are gathered here today to get through this thing called life Electric word life, it means forever and that's a mighty long time But I'm here to tell you There's something else The afterworld R.I.P. Prince, this is Film Spotting. We did get the news of Prince's passing just after we recorded last week's episode, Josh, but before the show went live, so we were able to honor his purpleness with music in our segment breaks. And I had planned to pay a little more tribute to him here by naming our top five Prince songs. And as I was going through the list, I realized that it was kind of a boring list. I think it's a testament to, despite my real affection for Prince, genuinely think he was one of the all-time musical geniuses and certainly one of the all-time great guitar players. 
I'm not all that familiar with his entire body of work, at least over the past decade or so, but also a testament to just how good of a pop songwriter he was that my list is full of very conventional, obvious choices. Things like Let's Go Crazy and even Raspberry Beret, the one little off-the-beaten-path tune, always by far, by a country mile, my favorite Prince song is I Can Never Take the Place of Your Man. great tune that I think not enough people are probably aware of because it wasn't a huge hit. I think it peaked at number 10 on the charts. I looked it up and that was the highest it got. So it kind of came and went, but I love that song. Yeah, I don't think my list would be too unconventional either. Maybe maybe I would list, let's say Cream as a favorite. You I like think every, yeah. yeah, I really like it a lot, but I think every good Prince song should also make you blush or right. make someone who's listening to it blush. Yeah. And I think that does the trick. It was funny. I was coming out of uh, Green Room, actually, at the River East Theaters and a listener, Matthew, I ran into, and he had seen Green Room just the night before. So we were talking about some of the details and this was the day after Prince had died. And he said at the music box at the Thursday night green room showing, which mm. would have been the day of his death, when there's that Prince reference, when one of the characters oh, chooses yeah. him as her desert island artist, just the crowd went I up bet. with a cheer. He, oh, said, man. he said it was a really cool moment. Yeah, perfect timing there. I did manage to rewatch, Josh, about half of Purple Rain on a flight home a few nights ago. And I don't think I've seen Purple Rain since I was a kid. And for whatever reason, even before I ever picked up an instrument, I, and I've said this before, I was drawn to movies about musicians. I loved movies like Purple Rain, and I've said a million times the Buddy Holly story. For whatever reason, again, I didn't play anything at the time, but they captivated me, and I loved Purple Rain. And it holds up through (laughs) half of it. I'll say that because... The music is so good, and Prince really is such a presence, and there are a lot of nice touches. Morris Day is a hoot, for lack of a better word, in the movie, but it hasn't aged all that well. Hmm. There are some really cheesy 80s filmmaking touches to the movie, and I'll say this, too, because you really can't talk about Purple Rain, even just watching the first half, without thinking about how poorly it plays now from a misogyny standpoint. There That's are elements I've heard from people who've been well, revisiting it. When yeah. you're watching Morris Day and Jerome, who kind of are the villains of the movie anyway, but Prince as a character, the kid, he doesn't treat women any better in the film. He's constantly tormenting Apollonia. But there's a scene where a girl that clearly has had some kind of a tryst with Morris Day comes out of an alley and accosts him for not calling her back or whatever. And Morris Day says something kind of funny to Jerome and Jerome literally grabs her and picks her up and throws her in a dumpster. And there's those kind of touches where it's like, we're the men and Mm -hmm. how dare you question us and we can just shut you up by throwing you in a dumpster. So there are those touches that, again, have not aged very well with Purple Rain, but it's still a pretty fascinating movie and one that I hope to finish here in the very near future. So maybe good we didn't do a Sacred Cow review, which we were sort of considering. Yeah, exactly. Let's get to a couple promotional items here, Josh. We have had a lot of movie passes to share with our listeners here in Chicago lately. Always fun to do. We have even more coming. One that is currently available on our site, if you want to enter, is for a new indie movie called Viva, about a Havana hairdresser with dreams of becoming a drag performer. It was Ireland's 2015 Oscar entry, and that advanced screening is on May 6th. So again, if you go to our website right now, you can enter to win those free passes. And the new movie starring Ewan McGregor, where he plays both Jesus and the Devil, which sounds pretty intriguing. He to can me. do it all. Yeah. And I hope to see him do something 
really good on screen after having caught up with the Don Cheadle directed Miles Ahead. Oh, no. This past weekend. Not his strongest work? I'm mixed on the movie. I love the ambition of it. I love Cheadle as Miles. The conceit of casting Ewan McGregor and creating this writer character to go find Miles and try to bring him out of seclusion, nothing about it works. Nothing about the performance, Mm. nothing about the character. As an overall conceit, it didn't work for me, but I'm hoping we get something a little more juicy here out of McGregor in Last Days in the Desert. It opens May 13th in Chicago, and this contest is actually for passes during its run of engagement. So after it opens, you'll be able to enter that contest on our website after May 2nd. So if you're listening to this before May 2nd, you won't see it just yet, but on our website in those top stories, you'll see the link soon. I get to see Last Days in the Desert tomorrow. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I've been looking forward to that one for a long time. We also wanted to mention the 23rd annual Chicago Underground Film Festival. They've just announced their lineup. This is going to be June 1 through 5, and this will be of special interest to film spotting listeners. It's going to include the Chicago premiere of Golden Brick nominee Joel Petrikas's latest, The Alchemist Cookbook. Of course, you remember him from Buzzard, which yeah. we both quite enjoyed. You can find more information about the Chicago Underground Film Festival at cuff.org. Very excited about that. Didn't know that was even in the works at the moment, but clearly after Buzzard, we can't wait to see what is next from Joel Petragas. Hope to have him on the show. Maybe we can do something around the time of that festival when it rolls around in June. One other quick plug. Last week, for the first time, I plugged my upcoming summer class at the University of Chicago's Graham School, The Art of Memoir on Screen, and I mentioned how I was going to overload it with guests, and you I just don't know how you even did it. You somehow slagged me and suggested that I was just trying to get out of doing the work myself. I have got a great lineup, Josh. Uh-huh. I mean, even besides you, I do have some great you guests have more, huh? lined up. I have a guest for every week, and I think it's going to be a great class. But the reason I bring it up again is because it might not be totally clear to listeners that even though it is at the University of Chicago, you do not have to be a University of Chicago student to take the class. It is part of their Graham School, which is continuing education. I have had students now going back seven or eight years who range in age from 17 or 18 on up to 70 and 80. And that's one of the most rewarding aspects of the class that we get that full spectrum of movie fans, some who are really, really passionate, some who are really just discovering their passion for film for the first time or they're off to an early start. So if you're interested in taking that class, you're in the Chicago area and you can make it downtown to Chicago to take part in the class. We would love to have you. There's more info about that and a link to register also in the top stories over at filmspotting.net. Okay. Our next marathon, Josh, we have alluded to this, that we're hoping to make our marathons a more regular part of our shows, not going three to four months between them or maybe Possibly full years. A year. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try to avoid that. And after wrapping up our Elaine May Marathon a couple weeks back, we asked you to help us choose the next one. And as is often the case here in film spotting, we didn't necessarily do it the right way. We'll get to those results in a second. But we did ask you, and in the tradition of recent marathons like those we devoted to Iranian cinema and Korean auteurs, we wanted to spend our next marathon filling in some blind spots from contemporary artists. And we gave you three options. Chinese language art house. This would be filmmakers like Ho Shao Shen, certainly. Mm-hmm. Chinese language popular. This would include Choi Hark and Johnny To. Or Scandinavian cinema, which even though we have not been blasted for it yet, we have preemptively rebranded as Nordic cinema because that, a little bit more technically anyway, allows us to include 
Finland. We are, as ever, stupid Americans. And we really want to include Finland. We do want to include Finland. So we put it up there, those three options. And in fairness to us, we did know ahead of time that having two Chinese language options ran the risk of splitting that vote Mm -hmm. and maybe not getting a true sense of what our listeners really wanted. It was also the recommendation of Sean Gilman, our Wuxia expert and longtime member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. He thought that it just was too much to try to jam them into one marathon. In retrospect, well, let's get to the results before we get into the rethinking of everything in retrospect. Josh, how did it come out? Well, the split is sort of what happened. Chinese language art house films got 25% of the vote and Chinese language popular films got 30% of the vote. So it's Nordic cinema with the win, 45%. So now the in retrospect part, Mm -hmm. the hindsight kicking in, you wonder if we had combined those, just made it two options or even three options and we had something completely different where it was just Chinese language cinema and maybe we made it an eight film marathon or at least a six film marathon and we combined art house and popular. Would Nordic cinema have still come out on top? I don't know enough about math and chance and polling to really be able to gauge that right now if you could even gauge it, but I will say this. 45% of the vote compared to 55% of the others, it's not so overwhelming Chinese language that it makes you think that Nordic cinema wouldn't have won anyway. If somehow that gap had been a lot smaller and you're really like, wow, the Chinese language options just dwarfed Nordic, then I'd feel a little worse about it. I kind of feel like this is maybe what the majority of listeners do want. Yeah, and I think Sean's point about it being too big to just do Chinese contemporary cinema is right on. I mean, what we do these to try to get some handle, at least a beginning handle, on a certain genre or time period of film or region. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to be too big to allow us to do that, then it's probably not worth doing in that way. So we'll get we'll get to these other ones too. We will. I mean, we have a plan for ramping these up. We're making good on it here. So don't worry. We'll we'll get to those Chinese language marathons at some point. Yeah, and as we did lay out a few weeks back. We are going to do this regularly. When we get to our next marathon, we've kind of got a rotation plan going. We're always going to give you three options to vote on. We want you guys to be invested in this. We want our listeners to play along with these marathons. And just because we didn't choose either Chinese language option right now, we're going to at some point get back to another kind of international cinema contemporary marathon option and Chinese language will still be included in that. So it's not over yet for these Chinese language directors, but we do have to now begin the business of actually choosing these Nordic cinema options. And right now we're considering picking two films each from three or four directors. The ones we have pretty solidly penciled in are Sweden's Roy Anderson and Finland's Aki Karismaki. I have not seen a film by either of those filmmakers. You have seen one Karismaki film. I've seen The Man Without a Past, really, really liked it, so I'm excited about this. Yeah, and that may, in fact, have to be part of the marathon, even though you've seen it. That's fine. Just because I think it is one of his more well-known films. Roy Anderson really had not been on my radar much at all, was put on my radar by Allison Wilmore from Film Spotting SVU. You'll recall during our 500th episode when we asked people to name their favorite film of the film spotting era, her number one pick was a Roy Anderson That's movie, right. You the Living. So I have been dying to check that movie out ever since, and this will give us that chance. Beyond that, there are lots of other options that we have to figure out how to kind of navigate. There's Suzanne Beer from Denmark, Thomas Vinterberg, there's Tobias Lindholm who did a hijacking and a war from Sweden. You've got Ruben Oslin, who did Force Majeure. Great We were film. both big fans of that. Lucas Moodyson, Together and We Are the Best. Those are both movies I've seen. And Together was, in fact, reviewed here on the show as, I believe, a listener's choice option a while back. He, I think, is one of those 
maybe right to say old guard Swedish filmmakers that even though he's still very much a contemporary filmmaker, I could see us leaving him out of this. Together is what, about 10 years old now, maybe more? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I've seen that one too. Maybe 2001. And We Are the Best was just a film from last year, the year before, and a very good movie. But you've got all these different well-known directors. You've also got the regions themselves. We could very much break it up by saying, well, we've got Karsmaki from Finland. We've got Anderson right. from Sweden. Let's pick a filmmaker from Norway. Let's pick a filmmaker from Denmark, and we'll call it a day. And that might be what we do, but we're open to suggestions. If you're a Nordic cinema expert, please do send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Hi, Adam and Josh. Mike Merrigan, founding father of Film Spotting Madness. I'm calling because at this point, I assume that the Coen brothers are the champions of this year's Film Spotting Madness tournament. I imagine that PTA kept it close, but as a three-time Lebowski Fest trivia champion, I have to say I'm pleased with the outcome. Thank you guys for running this silly little tournament for another year. Thanks to Film Spotting Nation for voting and having so much fun in the forums and on the comment sessions. The real question is, when does Josh sit down to watch Ridiculous 6? And will he be reporting back on an upcoming episode of Film Spotting? Lastly, Star Wars versus Raiders of the Lost Ark. Annie Hall versus All the President's Men. What are you going to do next year, guys? Do you have the stomach for it? Thanks again. Keep doing what you're doing. I don't want to rule out Mike Merrigan weighing in on future topics here, Josh, but kind of sad that that may be the last time we hear from the founding father of Film Spotting Madness for a little while. That great voicemail, the pride of Dover, New Hampshire, Mike Merrigan. We got that voicemail last week just after we recorded the show when we announced this year's Madness champion. Of course, the director's bracket and as Mike rightfully assumed, the Coen brothers did come out on top over Paul Thomas Anderson. We've got a bit of unfinished business to get to our third place match between Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese. That was just too close to call last week. We let it go another week and it's still really close this is going to be fun we'll also get to a final accounting of the madness bracket contest between you and me josh and mike and sam we're going to see who the big loser was (laughs) there and yes madness 2017 promises to bring more misery of the pretend sort or the real sort of your josh and you have to put up with a year of behind the scenes bickering about the proper seating for i don't know godfather one and godfather two you know, all the hand-wringing we were just doing over Nordic cinema and yeah. what to choose. And that makes sense because that matters. But you and Sam do about 20 times as much hand-wringing over film spotting madness. We do. There's <laughs> no doubt. Matter. It doesn't matter. It gives us purpose in life. We don't have <laughs> enough going on with children right. and exactly. this show that, you know, we got to come up with other distractions. I don't know what that says about us existentially, Josh, but we're going to. We're going to wade in those deep waters once again as we get to Film Spotting Madness 2017. We're not there yet. Let's finally close the book on Madness 2016. And as we said, close, so close, maybe the closest film spotting poll ever. This is essentially a death match, right? And we've never had one this tight. Martin Scorsese versus Wes Anderson Anderson for for third third place. place, the two losers of the final four and... They have been neck and neck, Josh. It's been within I mean, a couple of votes, a few votes. for the, two weeks, right? The biggest gap I've seen over the past week was about 14 votes. That's okay. the biggest gap I've seen in this poll question. And what we did was we decided that we would just do it on air. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to hit refresh. I'm going to bring it up on my computer. Whoever is winning is 
the winner. Right now, we close it down. And you're you're hoping for Scorsese here, I'm assuming. I did vote Scorsese yeah, in yeah. this. And I obviously want Wes. It's, yes. You know, it's it's a difficult choice, but yeah. yeah. But this was meant to be that we'd have opposite picks here okay. in the bronze match. And Give it to me. We have almost 2,000 votes in. So, nice. you know, still kind of a fraction of the film spotting audience, but a pretty large sample size, I would say, overall. I feel a pretty good, good for a poll. about the scientific validity of this poll. Here we go, Josh. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. The winner with 50 Point oh five percent of the vote Holy cow. to forty nine point nine five percent of the vote. Martin Scorsese. Come on! The now, how many times did you master. just vote? How many times did you just <laughs> did vote not. before hitting how refresh? How dare you, sir? How <laughs> dare you? Two votes. Oh man! Two votes out of almost two thousand. That's how close it was. So, if you're a big Wes Anderson <sighs> fan out there, look really, had, really bad. You've had two weeks. You've had two weeks. You could have swayed this. You could have enlisted a few friends. Instead, Wes Anderson fourth place. People are going to look back on this poll and say, "What in 2016? <laughs> yeah. That's where listen." Well, hey, you know what? Or silence coming from Scorsese. This winter will be a That's masterpiece. Right. Could change it, yeah. And then it'll look great. Exactly. Why don't we share a little bit of feedback here we heard from Darren in the Film Spotting Madness poll. Last night, I attended the 40th anniversary screen of Taxi Driver at the Tribeca Film Festival. Watching it with a packed audience, Scorsese, De Niro, Keitel, Foster, Schrader, and more included, was a film-going experience I won't soon forget. But it was also a reminder of the powerful darkness of that masterpiece. Every scene, every shot, reveals Scorsese's unique vision. Sadly, it was also a reminder of the personal and powerful touches that just don't seem to be in his more recent work. In fact, I fear he won't again make films quite so personal or quite so powerful. Nevertheless... He still earns my vote. I haven't missed a Scorsese film in theaters since Goodfellas. Okay, okay, I skipped Kundun. And I've never been completely disappointed. Anderson, on the other hand, only recently started redeeming himself. The Grand Budapest Hotel ranks up there among his early masterpieces, but I didn't even bother seeing it in theaters because the misfires between Royal Tenenbaums and Fantastic Mr. Fox left such a sour taste. Amazingly, Scorsese never lost my interest in that way. Scorsese found the secret. You need to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. Well, maybe Darren listed a few of his friends to vote for Scorsese as, again, he takes down Wes Anderson by only two votes. We have been keeping listeners up to date on how our own challenge is going internally here, how we predicted things Mm -hmm. would go. Me, you, Sam, and... Mike Merrigan. And this isn't so much a matter of who won, but who lost. Because <laughs> I think more this pain? Is this pick. more pain coming my way? We'll see. We'll see. The loser has to watch Adam Sandler's Ridiculous Six. This was Mike's idea. Yeah, wasn't it, it was. Okay. It's not as great of an idea as Film Spotty Madness. <laughs> well, who's going to bring the pain? That loser is, as I correctly anticipated last week without doing the math, Josh. Mm-hmm. It's you. Yeah. Applying an improvised system. Screw for, it again. Yeah. Turning madness picks into points. This was all done by Sam. Blame him if you want, Josh. You scored 51 points. I scored 59. Mike Merrigan, 63. And Sam, despite having the incorrect finals matchup, we had the correct final, PTA versus the Cone Brothers. Yeah. He had the Cones versus Quentin Tarantino. He won it by a whisker with 64 points. He also, as I said, tabulated the points. So this, this all could this be a This hasn't sham. been under independent review. It hasn't I have to just been. trust Sam. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I trust him over your refreshing and clicking over there, whatever (laughs) was going on. How dare you? Come on. 
Well, we have, of course, as you heard from Michael, and as you heard on last week's show, we've begun thinking about what Madness 2017 should look like. We want your help to decide how we should approach it. We've given you a couple of choices. One is a reprise of sorts from last year's contest. Instead of mixing up actors and actresses, we'd pit 32 actors against 32 actresses. So a full round of 64 instead of just 32 total, setting up an actor versus actress final. That's one option. The other is a film spotting pantheon madness with our most beloved films competing for the title of most beloved of them all, I guess. As Mike teased in his voicemail, a madness that would force you to choose, think about this, Josh, between the likes of Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. If that's not madness... I don't know what is. Yeah, that's that's just not fair at all. No, Those it's going to be the worst. Oh, man. It's going to be the hardest film spotting madness yet, if it that is, be. in fact, the way we go. And spoiler alert, maybe a little bit of a hint here. So far, there is an overwhelmingly favorite choice, but we are going to leave it up for another week to give you a chance not only to vote, but to share some ideas for future Madness tournaments. Like, just because there's a big winner here so far and we like the direction it's going, it doesn't mean we don't get a great idea that we might throw in anyway or that will be perfect for Film Spotting Madness 2018. Josh, can Sam and I start <laughs> on that already? To, do you have all your charts out? Maybe. Maybe all right. we Meanwhile, do. in the meantime, I will watch Ridiculous 6 and... Report back. Please do. I, I, I'm not confident it will be a Larson Recommends segment, uh-huh. no. but I'll do my best. Okay. Well, we will share the results next week. And in the poll, there is that option for other, and you can write in your choice if you have another option that you think is better than actors versus actresses or the Pantheon films. With all that, let's move on to a little bit of Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show you may remember, it's been a while, where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. Since we've been on hiatus a bit during Film Spotted Madness, we don't have a clip to play from last time, so we'll just get right into it. It's a scene, man, memorize it. <laughs> what? Look, man, an undercover cop's gotta be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you gotta be a great actor. You gotta be naturalistic. You gotta be naturalistic as hell. I love when our massacre theaters can include a little bit of sound effects, Josh. That, that we can't really provide because no. we're low on the budget for props? Yeah, Is that the I problem? Guess. And really have no vocal talent to speak of. This scene, I guess we are just going to put this on a silver platter for our listeners. We're like, hey, we've been away too long. You're maybe out of practice, so we need to just... Make it as easy as possible. Yeah, yeah. this is because we're spoon feeding you. Pretty this. obvious. It ties in with our top five this week: single location films, which of course is also a tie-in with our review earlier in this show of the new movie Green Room. And if you are familiar with this film, if you do recognize it, or even if you don't, how about that? I'll give you a little bit of a hint. Sam gave you a little bit of a hint with the little Masker Theater theme choice. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Gave you a little they bit should of have hand. everything they need, even before the performance. I agree. I agree. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Let's give it a try. And action. So why shouldn't we get away with it? We'll stack the bodies in the cellar, lock it, leave quietly one at a time, and forget that any of this ever happened. And you'll just, you'll just come blackmailing us all? Of course. Why not? Well, I'll tell you why not. <laughs> oh, good shot. Oh, very good. And, and scene. scene. I was a little late on one of my lines there. I <laughs> didn't have, right. I really didn't have the motivation, the proper motivation. The there. gunshot was great. Is that how you did it when you used to play cops and robbers? It's like, 
really nice. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 9th. For the record, Adam like pointed at me with I did. his finger I did. Too. I actually so, shot Josh. You were in the moment. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. We'll share our favorite single location movies when we come back. Stay with us. I want the swampers in fame, but I settle for that laptop boy. Caught in a hurricane, almost everything's background noise. At night I ride the rails, but I wake up tired to track. And when those sad wheels wait, Second time from that I was a rodeo legend 23 in 87 Just a saddle bum Now I'm a long tall daddy Riding south of Tallahassee On a cattle run I drive a Maxima I want the swampers and fame just going to jump in here for a second as we share a few donors, Josh, and a couple thank yous, and we get to our featured artist this week as well, Muhammad Seven. He's a film spotting listener in Boston who sent us his new album, Bedouin Cowboy. Hi, Adam, Josh, and the film spotting team. I love and appreciate the show so much. I've been listening for years. Thanks for bringing good film discussion to all of us. I'm a working dad and a musician, and with not much time to record music, I decided to make an album of original Americana songs on my iPhone. I'm sending you a free copy of the album and wanted to offer it to you as act break music for your show. I'm also a screenwriter, and I think of your segments as acts at this point. Happy spring to all of you on the Film Spotting team. We don't hear happy spring much, but we will take it. And if you go to Muhammad's website, muhammad7.bandcamp.com, and we'll also put that in our show notes, you'll see that not only can you sample the tracks, but you can watch a video that Muhammad made explaining the story behind how he set about to make this album and how he did it on his iPhone. I highly recommend it. Another quick programming note, we got an email from Philip Swift, who was in Chicago last October for a screening of his documentary, The Dark Side of Disney. This is a movie that's about Disney enthusiasts who maybe take it a little bit too far. And if I read correctly, Philip might be one of these people. It might come from a little bit of personal experience there. We mentioned the dark side of Disney on the show when it was here this past October. And Philip says that screening was sold out probably due to your loving audience. He wanted us to know that the film is now out on DVD and VOD and our listeners can get all the details at dsoddoc.com. We will put that link in our show notes as well. Two quick donors we wanted to mention, a new $5 a month donor, Dave David in Matomedi, Minnesota. That looks right. Matomedi. I'm going to say you have a 32.5% chance of having gotten that right. <laughs> Bring on the emails. And a new $10 a month donor. He's Ryan in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, David. Thank you to all of our monthly donors. And of course, if you don't have any extra cash to help support the show, that's fine. A no-cost way to help get us a little bit more visibility is to rate us on iTunes. It actually does make a difference. You can write a nice review or you can just give us a star rating there. We encourage you to do so. I tried to take you away 
Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. What's up, Film Spotting Original Recipe? This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, inviting you to join us on our latest episode where we review the shocking and confrontational new German comedy, Look Who's Back, in which none other than Adolf Hitler wakes up in the year 2015 and becomes a huge celebrity. If that's not enough to work you into a Fuhrer, because the Fuhrer hate it when Matt writes these scripts, uh, we're also going to recommend some other controversial or edgy comedies you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, look for us on iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This is Craig Brewer, the director of Black Snake Moan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Hey guys, this is Dave from Nebraska. I love the show. I've been listening for a long time since like spring 2005, and I thought I'd chime in with my pick for the single location top five. I would suggest uh, The Cabin in the Woods for all the ways this film is amazing. Most of the amazing stuff happens in the context of this creepy kind of ever-changing cabin space. When we first see the cabin, it looks like it's ripped straight out of the Evil Dead. But as the film goes on, we see there's these different levels to the cabin, kind of literally. There's these tricks and traps and all kinds of different stuff around every corner. And once the kind of surviving members of the cast start to figure out that the cabin's not what it originally looks like, they start to hack the cabin and discover even more secrets down below that are even more grisly. As they go lower and lower, the things start to get even more and more primal. And uh, I think it's a good pick for this list. Um, I hope it makes one of your guys' list, and I hope uh, you keep up the great work. Thanks. This is Film Spotting, and it is top five time. Our thanks to Dave from Nebraska for that voicemail and that pick, 2012's The Cabin in the Woods. Josh, did you give any consideration to The Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, that's a great idea for this list. I think that might have been one of um, the very early reviews uh, we did together when I joined the show, Cabin that's in the true. Woods. It's going yeah. back a ways. And I did like the movie. As I recall, I was positive on it, though maybe not quite as positive as Dave. So it wasn't one I strongly considered, but I may have a little bit of a nod to Dave and to that film as we get into our list. Just a little bit of setup. I do want to acknowledge for our longtime listeners that this top five has been done. Single location movies has been done once before in Film Spotting's history, episode 358. It was a tie-in with Attack the Block, which all takes place in that London neighborhood. Maddie and I shared our top five there, and I'm going to go ahead and just give my top five on that show here real quick. I had my dinner with Andre a movie I know you adore, Josh, 12 Angry Men. I knew that was going to come up with this list. Dogtooth, Hunger, and a movie I really do know you love. My number one was maybe your all-time favorite movie, Hitchcock's Rear Window. Right now, that's my answer when people ask. Okay, so I'm guessing you left it off of this top five because that just wouldn't be fun? (laughs) Well, I did want to avoid the list that you and Maddie had just for a variety's sake. And this was such a rich topic that that's one of the reasons we did decide to revisit it is because there are so many great films you can choose from on this. Well, let's hear one of those great films. Your number five. So, for example, you could have gone with any number of Hitchcock films alone, you know, not only Rear Window, but also Rogue. I think, and Dial M for Murder as well. But I'm going to go with 1944's 
lifeboat for my Hitchcock choice here. I think maybe just because it's maybe you could say it's the most restrictive of the single location titles that I just listed. Let me guess. On They're a on a lifeboat. You got it. It's the title vessel. And uh, the survivors here, this comes after a German sub has torpedoed the Allied ship on which they had been traveling. So really, the vast majority of the film does take place there. And in terms of how Hitchcock uses this restricted space, I really like the way he makes us always feel the close proximity of the water and then finds these clever ways of associating it directly with death. So Obviously, this is going to make for some grim stuff, and there are a lot of queasy details in this film. One of the survivors is a young mother, played by Heather Angel, and her infant son has drowned during the sinking. So she becomes delusional with grief when she's on the lifeboat, and there's this really eerie moment where she tries to address her baby while she's looking out at the sea. Hmm. So that's, you know, that's awfully morbid, but uh, believe it or not, there are a lot of ways where Lifeboat is light and even witty. I think of Tallulah Bankhead, who's the main figure in the cast, really. She's this society journalist, and she sort of acts like she's hosting a dinner party rather than in this life and death situation. What part of the ship are you from, darling? Engine room. I was off duty in the washroom, thanks. Caught with my... I was washing my hands when the torpedo smacked us. Most of the crew were trapped like rats. When I got the topside, it was a shambles. Quite an item. Reminded me of an air raid once. It hit me in Chungking. Reminded me of a slaughterhouse I once worked at in Chicago. Those Nazi buzzards of tin fish ain't enough. They've got to shell us, too. There's a lot of things going on here, uh, but overall, what permeates everything is, again, due to this single setting. Hitchcock never lets us forget just how trapped by the ocean these people are and how death is is really just a few feet away. Yeah, a movie from Hitchcock I unfortunately haven't seen. It's one of those many, I think you can rightfully say, second-tier Hitchcock movies. Yeah, I mean, I think not in the same fair. conversation with Vertigo yeah. or oh, sure, Psycho sure. and some others, but a second-tier movie. And there are some third-tier Hitchcock movies that I still haven't caught up with. Hitchcock was a marathon here on Film Spotting in the very early days, in the first six months of the show, I believe, as we caught up with some of those major Hitchcock movies and actually a few non-major ones, too. But I think we could revisit Hitchcock. Oh, easily. He's got such a rich catalog. We could do like an early Hitchcock marathon. Yeah, would be really I would interesting. Love, I would love to do that. My number five, here's my little bit of a nod to The Cabin in the Woods and Dave's pick. I'm going with a movie that actually got a Sacred Cow review here on the show, though we split on this movie, Sam Raimi's The Evil Oh, yeah, Dead, sure. Taking place, of course, at that cabin. The two couples go out for a little rest and relaxation and get visited by a whole lot of possessed demon spirits or something. And obviously it fits this list, but I think it especially is appropriate because one of the things, as I went back to my notes, that really stood out to me about this film is the way Raimi not only throws everything at you from a cinematic point of view, but he takes this confined space, this cabin, and he finds ways to make it interesting visually, and he does it in a way that he makes this evil presence feel like it's something that truly has them completely surrounded. So we get the camera moving everywhere. We get it up in the ceiling, looking down. It's in the closet. It rushes to the door. I mean, it really does give you that sense of being trapped in just like these characters are. And it really starts all from that opening shot where the camera is kind of directly tied to that evil spirit where the camera is gliding across the water and through the forest like it's just waiting to 
find these characters and terrorize them. And it's a meta movie, too. I think it was Cabin in the Woods a little bit before Cabin in the Woods, where there's a scene where a projector starts running with the blood splattered on the screen. So we're hyper aware of the camera in this film. We're hyper aware of how Raimi's using the camera really to amplify the horror and to make us feel like the characters are, which is terrorized with no real hope for escape. Four of hearts, eight of spades, two of spades, jack of diamonds, jack of clubs. Why have you disturbed our sleep? Awakened us from our ancient slumber. You will die like the others before you. One by one, we will take you. Boy, with Evil Dead and 12 Angry Men, this this is looking to be the list of uh, films that Josh is all alone on <laughs> and not appreciating. Great. Yeah. I see well, where I this actually, is going. I actually put 12 Angry Men at number one just so we could fight about I'm it again. I'm sure you did. All right, let's, let's get to number four. That's where I have Russian Ark. This is Alexander Sokorov's single take journey through 300 years of Russian history, and he captures this by wandering through St. Petersburg's Endless State Hermitage Museum. Unlike my other picks, this use of a single location, it really does the opposite of making the experience seem confined. I think we're going to find ourselves talking about that quite a bit in our picks. But here, the single location just feels expansive. And I think that's partly due to the enormity of the museum itself. I mean, this place is just massive. But also the way that Sokorov, he he does this without cutting again, but he flits in among the centuries uh, just as easily as he moves from room to room. So the climax, for example, is this bit of unexplained time travel. It's about 10 minutes long, and it's just this immersion in a 1913 ball. So we get here, you know, this tightrope viewing experience where you're wondering how are they going to sustain this single take? How are they going to pull it off? Where are we going to go next? And you can feel that pressure in the background. You really do watch much of Russian Ark holding your breath while you're in this one single location. I want to mention, too, that Sokorov's latest film, and I just found out about this in doing some research, is something of a companion piece to this. It's called Francophonia, and uh, it explores the Louvre. I don't think that it's a single take in the same way, Mm -hmm. but again, exploring art and history just in another museum. That's actually going to be playing for two weeks at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago starting on May 6th, Francophonia. I have only seen one Sokorov film, and it's not either of the ones you mentioned. A good potential marathon candidate down the road. Russian arc like Lifeboat a movie I need to see, Josh. You are two for two on making me look bad. Well, let's go from The Evil Dead to another movie that is haunted by spirits of its own and terrorized by a demon who might even be more menacing than any of the demons we see in The Evil Dead. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Taylor's Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Mike Nichols' directing debut. Of course, there are some scenes that take place in a car and a nightclub, and some stuff that happens, some business out on the lawn of the house. But all the main action, of course, takes place in the house of George and Martha, which is situated on the property of a small New England college. Martha's the daughter of the dean, and George is a history professor, though one who doesn't seem to have the ambition or level of success that Martha would like him to have. This movie has been on my brain because of Elaine May and the fact that there's been two movies out this year that 
are Mike Nichols movies, two documentaries, the one that Elaine May directed for PBS's American Masters and then also the one Douglas McGrath made for HBO becoming Mike Nichols. I think that's why I definitely had it in mind. But there's a great bit of audio commentary on YouTube, and we'll link to it in our show notes. Steven Soderbergh interviewing Mike Nichols. They're doing an audio commentary for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So you just get the great cinematic mind of Soderbergh peppering the great cinematic mind of Mike Nichols with questions about the movie and walking through the whole production of it. And Nichols says some interesting stuff about how he approached shooting in that house. He says that a lot of the physical staging he figured out way in advance. He had it all in mind. And he also rehearsed it way in advance because it's something he likes to do with all his films so he could forget it and everyone else could forget it. He wanted to become more instinctual. And I love how he basically says he never wanted it to get perfect. And that does so apply to this movie because there is a precision to the way the camera moves and a precision to the way everything is blocked and staged that still never feels too precise because these people and their lives is pure chaos. So you get that sense throughout the entire film. And there's an interesting anecdote in there as well where he's talking about working with Haskell Wexler, the cinematographer on the film, and Wexler making this suggestion about a shot that he's recommending that would involve some movement. And Nichols is basically saying, okay, but what would it do? And he's not trying to be a jerk or be sarcastic. He's saying, what's the point of that shot? And Wexler says, well, it would just be some great movement. You get the characters kind of moving in and out of the frame at this certain point or whatever. And he's like, yeah, but what does it do? How does it serve the scene? And Wexler's like, well, it doesn't really. It's just interesting. <laughs> and Nichols didn't want to go that route. He wanted to go with something that was a little bit more necessary. And I think that that's that perfect balance he finds here with the movie, because that line between interesting and necessary, I think, is always a crucial question with any movie. But it's even more crucial when you're in a confined space and your choices are limited. And Nichols here just doesn't really make a bad choice. So I was going to watch this for this list because I've never seen it. But in just reading some of the plot summary and stuff, I thought, oh, maybe it goes too far afield from the house. But no, it's in the house. Would have worked, huh? Okay, missed Mm -hmm. my chance. All right, let's go back to traditional horror for my number three pick. I'm going with Paranormal Activity. It's here. What's here? What? What are you talking about? I feel it. I feel it breathing on me. I've only seen the first three films in this franchise, and I do think that the original, the first one, is probably the best of those. But I'm going to cheat a little bit and reference all three of them because I think their use of single locations are really distinct and important as to why I think these are all really effective horror films. Great. With three choices, that makes you five for five on movies I haven't seen. <laughs> well, so it's even worse. This isn't my goal, you know, Adam. I don't set out to do this <laughs> sure. for my list. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially, it's the same premise each time. Weird things are happening in a suburban house at night, so the homeowners set up a surveillance camera to catch the goings-on. And so, you know, it's part of the found footage horror genre. Now, what's fascinating is how the placement of these cameras completely defines our sense of these homes in terms of space. Every use of a set is going to do that, but it's it's really intricate to what's happening in these paranormal activity films. So in the first one, the camera is... It's set up in the couple's bedroom so we can see them sleeping in the bed. And then to the left of the screen is the open door so we can see the hall and the stairway. So they're just so exposed in that one shot. Mm -hmm. And we can get a sense of the pathways that are the entranceways for whatever's out there to come to them. 
paranormal activity, too, widens the scope of it. It involves a family, and there are more cameras, but it still gives us this intimate sense of a single location, and there's a really clever use of the mirrors in a baby's bedroom there. And in the third film, there's this really ingenious touch. They place one of the surveillance cameras on the base of an oscillating fan, so it slowly pans from the kitchen, say, to the family room, and then back again. And we're completely at its mercy. It's it's just some excruciating tension when something we're desperate to see is going on in one part of the house and the fan just pans away and we can no longer see it. We can only hear it. So, yeah, sorry that you haven't seen any of these. Hmm. I'm guessing you're also never going to see it. Yeah, I was going to say that I'm a little too terrified just by the trailers for the paranormal yeah, activity really movies. Effective. That... I find I know some people don't like these films, but I find them very effective hmm. and, and pretty clever. Okay. My number three single location movie is another movie we've talked about fairly recently here on the show and one we definitely split on. It is Lock. One of my top five films of 2013. Stephen Knight wrote and directed it and Tom Hardy, the star. And I've been hard on Tom Hardy with some of his recent performances, but I think he is mesmerizing here as a character who spends the entire movie, basically about a 90 minute running time, pretty much just talking on the phone in his SUV. And I think we get one shot of him outside the car over the course of the entire movie at the beginning. Yeah, that sounds right. We see him getting off work. It's nighttime getting in the car and then starting to make a few calls and we piece the story together as we go. Hello? Eddie, it's your dad. Is, uh, is your mother there? Uh, no, she's not back from the shops yet. Um, she's getting that German beer that you like for the match. Okay, uh, listen, I won't be back for that. What? Uh, something's come up. I can't get out of it. I'm wearing the shirt. Uh, Mum's getting sausages. Oh, yeah, and guess what? She's wearing the shirt as well. Oh, Dad, it's so embarrassing. Um, yeah, what did you say about coming home? I won't be back for the match. I'll, uh, I'll have to listen to it on the radio. Dad, you said you'd be back. It's rubbish on the radio. Mum's doing sausages and all. In theory, there's no way this should work. Tom Hardy is that good of an actor that he can make 90 minutes watching him in a car compelling. I do think there are some things that Knight adds from a visual perspective that clash in a really interesting way with the stasis of the movie in terms of the background and how some of the colors are used. But that hearty performance is what really sells it. There's a real thematic resonance for me as well. I mean, the movie is this exploration of masculinity in crisis and free will and then just the stakes of it are so amazingly high where over the course of this one trip we're going to watch a guy potentially throw away everything and we have to ask ourselves why is he making the right decision here and we learn little bits about him as we go we learn even more about what the consequences of what his decision will be Locke hasn't come up in a little while here on the show wanted to give it some love it came up quite a bit from listeners on social media when Did it. I asked for suggestions for this topic so you're going to please a lot of listeners. people I, I'm just not that into concrete Adam I don't know what to <laughs> that's your you. problem I know <laughs> alright let's get to a sacred cow review we did that we agreed on for my number two pick and this is the breakfast club it's the ultimate high school as prison movie. And that's largely because it takes place entirely in one location. It's primarily the library of this suburban Chicago high school where Saturday detention is held. 
even when we do leave that room, it's very briefly. And I think largely to emphasize that these kids are trapped. I think of that shot of them caught on the other side of the gate when they've snuck out and they're Mm -hmm. running down the halls and they can only get so far. When we did review this, we spent a lot of time, deservedly so, on the cast. You've got Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, and Anthony Michael Hall. But I think director John Hughes' use of space is also a big part of why this movie works so well. When Vernon, this is the assistant principal played by Paul Gleason, lays out the rules for the day at the very beginning, mm-hmm. it's interesting that he he even does it in spatial terms, letting them know essentially that he's yeah. right on top of them. My office. Yep, yeah. right on top of them. All of this, it just echoes the constriction, the claustrophobia, it, that feeling of being hemmed in by adults, right? Mm-hmm. That That's what these kids are... As different as they all are, I think they all share that. And that's one of the main things that The Breakfast Club is about. Yeah. And along those lines, as they become more comfortable with each other and become less interested in worrying about the principal, they, of course, move around the space a lot more. That's the true. The library finally yeah. opens up as they move about yeah, the space. Yeah, they stay and they tied up. to those tables. But yeah. They, yeah, that's true. Well, we're in sacred cow territory here with my number two, our most recent sacred cow discussion. Josh, I tried to find reasons to leave it off because we just last week talked about Alien, and it was one of the films that partially inspired this top five, but I just love Alien too much to not include it. And The Nostromo, the name of the ship, which is, for the bulk of the running time of this film, the single location, here comes the very trite cliché, it becomes its own character in this film. We devoted during our discussion a lot of time to the opening of the movie, Mm -hmm. how Ridley Scott establishes this environment of the ship and how crucial it all is. And they do get off the ship. That's what I was alluding to. It's not all on the Nostromo. They get off on LV-426, of course, and they explore that, and that's where they end up bringing the alien back with them. But if you notice during that whole sequence where the three characters get off the Nostromo and go exploring, there is a lot of cross-cutting back and forth. I think we almost spend more time with the characters on the ship than we do the characters who are on this moon. So it really is about the people who are in the dark who are only hearing what's happening and they're the people ultimately who are going to suffer because of what those people bring back so it all makes sense and that overall attention to the ship and the environment it struck me while watching the movie how badly the landing on LV426 goes because how many movies have we seen how many sci-fi movies where these ships just take off and land at ease right and it might if I remember correctly serve a little bit of a plot point that they get stuck there Right. They damage themselves as they land. And so they damage the ship and it adds to the tension a little bit that now they're stuck for a little bit. But it really does make everything more real in a way because they're they're out of their element. They're out of their element. That's it. Right. They're landing on an unknown planet with these extreme weather conditions and they're landing, if I'm remembering right, a mining freighter or something. Right. It's not this automatic thing. Ridley Scott is not going to let this crew have something that just goes smoothly. Every step for these crew members is going to be a challenge, which makes sense. They aren't space heroes, right? They're just blue-collar workers who are on this commercial vessel, and they get caught up in something that, kind of like our characters in Green Room, they're not equipped for at all. So it definitely fits because Alien is definitely a classic in my mind, but especially the way Ridley Scott makes that Nostromo such a vital part of the movie moves it up the list for me. Yeah. Can't argue with giving Alien some more love. All right, at number one, I have, I'm going with, well, it's actually your best picture choice from our Robert Brisson marathon. 
I loved it as well. A Man Escaped. So good. Yeah. This is set largely in a German prison camp during World War II where a French resistance fighter played by Francois Leterrier, he's methodically planning this escape. So the prison is the single location. And we've talked about before how we mostly get a sense of it through sound, not image. And I think especially in watching some scenes uh, for this list of that final escape sequence when Fontaine is on the roof. And then we hear the squeaking wheels of the night guard's bicycle as he circles the prison down below. We see him too, but just as crucial as when Brisson cuts away and we can only hear as that squeak fades in and out as he comes near to Fontaine's hiding spot. There's, of course, also the single location of Fontaine's cell, where mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time on as he's chiseling at the door with a spoon handle. Uh, there are some moments there where we feel like we're we're never going to leave this small interior location. So I think the the claustrophobic confined nature of A Man Escaped is really in sharp contrast with the final image that we get. And this is what makes it so powerful when Fontaine scurries off into that foggy street, into that, that expanse, that openness mm-hmm. that you know, we've all been yearning for the whole film long. So A Man Escaped is just, it's one of the great films in general and uh, certainly a great single location film. Absolutely. My number one, if I was going to stick with this director and maybe go into different direction, I certainly could have gone with another film from Carl Theodore Dreyer, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah, I thought about it's that It's all one. about the trial, right? And it takes place in that makeshift kangaroo courtroom. But I'm going with a movie I just discovered last summer. You've heard me talk about it a little bit, Josh. It is Ordet from 1955, or in Danish, it translates to The Word. There are one or two scenes that take place at the home of someone else in this small rural village. And there are some shots that take place outside on the family farm, but all the drama really unfolds within the walls of the Borgen home. And it was basically the impetus for that class I taught last summer on spiritual crises in cinema because I just needed a great excuse to force myself to watch this movie. And it not only didn't disappoint, it's a film that has pardon the pun, ascended to a place among my all-time favorite movies. It is about this family. You have a patriarch who has three sons and a daughter-in-law, and one of the sons, the middle child, is Johannes, who we discover at the beginning of the movie wandering around the countryside proclaiming himself to be Jesus Christ. He truly believes that he is Jesus. He we learn later, went crazy studying philosophy. Something about Kierkegaard made him lose his mind, and he spends the whole movie wandering through the house, kind of like a crazy person, espousing all this alleged wisdom about compassion and love and how the current age doesn't seem to recognize what's truly important. And this is a film that is full of just occasionally jaw-dropping camera movements including one of the best long takes in cinema history. And it has an ending, I think I've mentioned this to you, Josh, that is truly provocative. You know, that's that word again that I love to use that I think sometimes doesn't come through as powerfully as you want it to be. Or debt is provocative. It is an ending where hardline believers, hardline people of faith could watch the end of this film and they could claim it while hardline secularists could critique it and could scoff at it. And I'd say that both groups 
are potentially wrong and misguided in their reading of the film. That's how much it will stay with you. That's how much it can provoke a great conversation about this movie and about the power of cinema, about the nature of cinema. I'm afraid that I'm overselling this movie a little bit in that people are going to rush out and see it and they're going to then write into me and say, really, this movie that's two hours of people talking to each other in this house, that's that powerful? Well, yeah, I truly believe that it is. And if you have the patience for it, I don't think it tries your patience too much. Certainly, there are Bergman films I consider for this list, like Persona and Through a Glass Darkly, that I think are more difficult to watch than Ordet by far. There are some characters, at least in Ordet, like the daughter-in-law, who are kind of our viewer's way in to this world and who we can truly relate to, whereas there are a lot of characters in Bergman films I'm not sure we can relate to or want to relate to, but Ordet is just magic. It is cinema magic. And you've been telling me that since last summer, and I still have yet to see it. So yeah. I'll get on that. Okay, so I got to shame you a little there bit you go. after you shamed me with 17 choices that I haven't seen. Those are our top five single location movies. Josh, what about honorable mentions? We were both discussing before we started here Solaris. Why don't either of us have Solaris on Why the list? Why don't we? <laughs> I, I mean, kind of came I mean, up I'm going to rate that film it. higher than Locke if yeah. I'm rating my all-time yeah. favorite films. Yeah, and, and it certainly and works. And Virginia Woolf and others. Certainly works for the list. Uh, das Boot, it was one of my top five films from 1981. It also made Maddie's list when you guys mm. did this topic earlier. I still haven't so, seen it because I'm too claustrophobic to watch a movie that takes place in a submarine. It is very claustrophobic. I also wanted to limit myself, I think, to one boat movie. So went with <laughs> Fair one enough. boat. Ex Machina, my number yeah, one film of I last know. year. I thought about it. Entirely takes place in Oscar Isaac's house and tech lab. More horror here. He could have gone with Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead. Yep. Pair of Bogarts, I'll yeah, give the you. the shopping mall. The shopping mall, right? Bogart Films, The Petrified Forest, I had on my top five hostage movies list and Key Largo, but I had that on my top five stormy mm-hmm. weather movies. Elaine Renee's Last Year at Marion Bad mm-hmm. would apply. Fincher's Panic Room, which I really like. I know people look Decent. down at that as one of his least interesting. I like it. I saw that a lot from listeners. Yeah, Poltergeist, I didn't think of Poltergeist. is another I love that horror. Movie. Great movie. And then Open Water. Did you see Open Water? This is like maybe eight years ago. The scuba diving couple who get left behind. No. In I shark infested. I did not, specifically because I knew I couldn't handle it. It's it's good. Yeah, I like that quite a bit. And it's a very big single location, but it's one right. location. <laughs> well, you named so many there. And I've got so many honorable mentions that I think maybe we should just put it off because 200 we'll shows again. from now we'll need to revisit this one. I told you. And there are that many worth considering. Some of the ones you mentioned. The Breakfast Club, obviously one I considered. A Man Escaped, one I considered. Another movie that takes place in a prisoner of war camp that was an honorable mention back on episode 358, Billy Wilder's Stalag 17. How about Airplane? How about oh, yeah. the Zucker Brothers sure. Airplane? Love that comedy. Don't tell me one. I'm not real wild about Airplane either. I'm, oh, come that on. That could have been on your list of oh. movies I, I'm really totally wrong about. Don't love. Okay. The Shining, which is in my penalty box. Otherwise, I would have considered it. Clerks from Kevin Smith. How about both the Duncan Jones films, Moon and Source Code? I mentioned the two Bergman movies. You said Solaris. The Exterminating Angel. That was one of my regrets last time, that Buñuel film. I acknowledge that I just hadn't seen it yet. Couldn't have been. In contention for my list, I have since seen it. It's come up on a few top five lists, I believe, and one I did think about here as well. And that is just about half of the movies I have here that are worthy of this list. So it might, in fact, be worth another look here down the road. Again, those are our top five single location films. We want to know your picks. 
Send those along with any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we might just feature it on the show. You can do that at 312-264-0744. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam's at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting SVU and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago this weekend, the latest film from the Nordic director, Joachim Trier, Louder Than Bombs, and The Meddler, also opening a film starring Susan Sarandon. Out in wide release, the Key and Peele movie, Keanu. Wasn't that one of my most anticipated? I think of it was. Year? Yeah, I can't I, wait. I'll to be see there. It. I think Friday morning. There you go. Mother's Day and Ratchet and Clank. I don't know anything about either of those two films, Josh. Do you? Mother's Day is one of those uh, holiday themed. Is it Gary Marshall? Oh no. Yeah. Like Valentine's yeah. Day. Yeah, yeah, really? yeah. Because yeah. I could have guessed that. I would have just said that. As a joke, and you're saying that's actually the movie? You are correct. You're brilliant. Okay. Ratchet and Clank, I think a video game thing? I don't mm. know. I don't know. <laughs> what are we doing here? That's a good question. Let's move on. Next week here on the show, man, we have been going back and forth, and we've been changing our minds on this. We were for a while planning to talk about Keanu. We were for a little while planning to talk about Louder Than Bombs and kicking off our Nordic Cinema Marathon. I think what we're going to do now is we're going to catch an early screening of Marvel's Civil War. Wait, what? Marvel? Isn't that Civil who it War? Is? What's that? I don't know. We're going to see that movie because Batman v Superman wasn't enough. We have to see Iron Man v Captain America. We are going to see that film. We are going to review it as it opens next weekend, of course, in wide release Civil War. I guess in terms of what else we have on the show, Josh, maybe we will go ahead and kick off the Nordic Cinema Marathon, even though I really want to give listeners a chance yeah, to see I those movies. Yeah, I think we'd so. like to have the schedule set, so we'll see. We'll figure it out. A lot to do. I'll give you this little hint. We'll probably open with a Roy Anderson movie. Okay. So you could start with one of those films, You the Living, or Songs from the Second Floor, maybe. There you go. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from Muhammad Seven. It's from his album Bedouin Cowboy. You can find more information at muhammad7.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.